welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined from orbit with my co-host, Jason Snell. Uh, are we both in orbit? Is that what's happening now? I mean, I guess sort of. Well, I, I believe technically you cannot have the dot space domain if you're not in space. So we must be in space. It's true, and and you do own a dot space domain. I do. Liftoffpodcast.space, which is the the Tumblr for this very podcast. <laughs> it's the earliest plug the Tumblr's ever gotten. <laughs> it's never going to be earlier. Uh, so how are you doing today? Ah, pretty good, pretty good. It's uh, it's always fun to talk about space stuff with you, and so I'm looking forward to it. We've got an interesting uh, subject that you picked for this one, so I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to doing it. This is uh, this is a Stephen's choice sort of uh, episode, so. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna go through the airlocks, various airlocks in space pretty soon. It's true. So we're gonna talk about some space station programs and projects that have taken place uh, over the decades. But first, we're going to do our pre-flight checklist. As always, you got to start with the checklist. You can't sk- if you skip over it, bad things happen. You got to start with the pre-flight checklist. That's right. I, I like the the sense of order that it gives us. So uh, what's this first one about? Did you see this, about this uh, flash of an exploding star? This is um, more data from, from Kepler, which is the space telescope that's designed to find exoplanets. Right. But instead, it found something completely <laughs> different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, when you're looking at a bunch of different points in the sky, I think sometimes you come across other things. So this is uh, believed to be the first uh, time that we astronomers, not we, you and I didn't see this, astronomers, right. <laughs> real scientists. There's an animated GIF on the on their website that, that shows it. So that's why I've seen it, I feel, feel right now, yeah. <laughs> of a uh, an exploding star. So there's this uh, phenomenon called a shock breakout. So it's the, the shock wave created when a star explodes. And it's something that, best I can tell, it has been known that it exists or theorized that it exists, yeah. but never actually observed the the life cycle of of stars is really interesting to me and we're going to do an episode about it probably pretty soon i've been listening to all of the astronomy class podcasts that i listened to like eight years ago again um so i can try to boil it down a little bit but this is one of the things i very clearly remember is there's this moment and we think about stars as you know they have these billion billions or tens of billions of years Uh, for smaller ones it's the life the lifespan is even longer but they have these long lives measured generally in billions of years but there are some events in a star's life that that last for maybe it's a matter of a hundred years or maybe it's a matter of 10 years. And this is a sudden collapse that happens that leads to a type two supernova. And it is a core collapse and it, and, and the whole event lasts about 20 minutes. So it, it is, it is the sudden immediate thing that happens in, uh, in, in, certain in in you know red super giants at this point where they're gonna where they're gonna flash and and go supernova which is i mean uh, in that time saying 20 minutes is just a heartbeat and so to, to be able to to capture it is really a, a big breakthrough and it, it's i i like stories like this where it's something that hey you know there's a lot of evidence that this sort of phenomenon takes place but we haven't seen it but yeah. it's predictable yeah they uh, use supercomputers to like work through the how the physics would work inside the stars we you know we see the the universe is kind of locked it's almost like we're seeing you know we see stars in every phase of their lives but because it's on a billions of years time scale we can't watch as most of the stars change we just have to kind of extrapolate it and yeah they plug it into like 
huge supercomputers to try and uh, get at what the behavior is like and why do we see what we see. But to then actually see it, I mean, this is like when we're talking about Planet Nine. You've got to have, um, you, you can have all the theories that you like. You can have these models that work great, but you do really need to see something in reality at some point in order to say, yes, that is exactly what we expected. And uh, and so now we know that that it's true in the real world. So uh, we're going to go from, I guess, exploding stars to books. That's not really a great transition. But um, uh, early on, it may have even been in our like demo episode. I have to go back and find it. But the the Kickstarter project f- to reprint the NASA graphics standard book, and remember there was some uh, dust up a little bit about this, and NASA actually released like high quality PDFs just on their website for free, uh, seemingly in in some sort of response to this. Anyways, I backed the Kickstarter because I'm um, a fan of physical books like this. Uh, I love uh, design like guidelines and graphic standards. It's this whole. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this whole book and whole system of how to use the worm logo, which of course some of us I won't say who on the podcast fans of it more it's than a cla- others. It's a classic. It's a it's the it's the NASA logo of, of my childhood. Yeah, um, it's, it's not, not the as cool as the then. meatball, but you know, it's I mean, good, but it's still a classic. Uh, hashtag worm was right. Yeah, but right. um, so the hashtag meatball forever. Just uh, you, we should do like a little Twitter poll if anyone knew how those worked. <laughs> so th- this book is high quality scans of those original, uh, this original standards book, and it's really, really well done. The guys who are behind this also did one for the New York City subway system, which, if you know anything about, has a very oh, yeah. elaborate, very well thought out design system throughout the whole thing. And um, it's just a great book. So mine showed up last weekend. It came. Uh, the book wrapper was like you know like the thin like um, like the foil blanket material, which I thought was a nice touch. Oh wow! Um, but it's really great. So I have that uh, on the bookshelf over near my desk. And yes, like the PDF is great. You should go check out the PDF. But uh, I like that I have it as like a real physical book. Something about that it does something for me. So so it's here. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I I think it's a cool project, and I I do I have. You know, it just brings back the '70s to me. As somebody who was born in in 1970, when I was a kid growing up, that was all the NASA stuff was that. That was the that was the all the space shuttle prep stuff, the space shuttle Enterprise, and then when we got toward the Columbia launch and all that, that was that was my childhood. NASA was the was the worm logo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny if you go back and look at um, obviously like the Apollo and stuff, but even the early shuttle photos. You know, it's got that logo on it before they switched back. Uh, back to the meatball. So lots of history in there. And I think it's just, uh, it's a fun project if you're into the, I guess if you're, if you're at that narrow band of people who like really like space stuff and design, this book is perfectly suited for you. It's perfectly suited for me. So you'll be happy to know the liftoff podcast. Twitter account has just tweeted out a Twitter poll. So people out there can uh, check out uh worm was right or meatball forever and make their own decisions. <laughs> Uh, so uh, moving into uh, commercial crew corner, as we do from time oh, yeah, to time, we do. Uh, NASA is now uh, moving into a phase where actually having commercial crews. So you know we've been in this lead up to this stuff for a long for a while now, um, but moving into the transportation capability mode of this contract uh, is now kind of uh, underway, and so there's a link here. 
um, with a uh, little bit of an interview um, with NASA's launch site uh, integration program and talking about that 2017 is going to be the year where we see commercial crew not only on the SpaceX uh, Dragon crew module, but also the the Boeing CST-100 Starliner. Right. Yeah, yeah, because these are the two uh, companies that, ha- that have really... Uh, driven uh they're the ones that are at the point where they can do this commercial crew stuff which is more than just the you know step one was ferrying things to the space station but step two is having something that's human rated so boeing and spacex both are um are working and i don't think it's an either or you know i think i get the impression that they're both probably going to end up unless something bad happens to one of them um they're both going to end up with contracts to do some some providing of this stuff i'm not quite sure of all the details there but you know it's it's cool that that both boeing and spacex have uh have uh craft in the works and and the goal is to get uh get people to to the space station um from the u.s with uh with NASA buying rides on these uh corporate uh launches instead of using the the Russian uh capsules from Kazakhstan as they're doing right now. Exactly. So it it's got to be uh a, a, I don't want to say a race between these companies. It's not what I'm going after, but it's going to be a series of uh, tests and certifications coming up. Um SpaceX is a my understanding is a hair ahead of Boeing on that schedule, um but uh Boeing is expected to catch up, and they're going to be putting American astronauts uh, into space from American soil. I think yeah. that's um, it's pretty neat. Yeah, just to, and this goes along with the you know Boeing and SpaceX, and also Sierra Nevada and Orbital ATK have been doing um, uh, crew or cargo. So mm-hmm. um, there 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 are more players here, but these are the two that are that are moving ahead with next year. Um, does it say are are they going to are are they going to send crews or is this like the next phase where they test the crew rated capsules before they send crews in 2017? I'm unclear on that point. Do you know? Yeah, it's it's a little bit um, a little hazy, a little hazy. Which I mean, I guess yeah. that's that's fine because it's still a ways out. But um, I mean, clearly that testing is is first. But I think that um, the the overall story is here that this is coming down the pipe pretty quickly. So. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna happen, and this is gonna be the end of you know. I guess I saw the last. I I'm still on the clock as having seen the last crude space launch from mm-hmm. American soil when I went to see the the space the last space shuttle launch STS one thirty five, and we we haven't launched people into space from the United States since then on on United States built craft. So this is this is going to be the end of that whether it comes in 2017. I think I remember something about how they were going to do the testing through 2017 and then they thought that um they thought that that, that there might be a crew launch in late 17. Uh, when they were detailing the NASA budget and how the budget was like, it might not be in the fiscal year, but it was going to probably be in the calendar year. But um, I don't remember it exactly. So, uh, but anyway, it's progressing. It's good to hear. So we spoke last episode about the ExoMars mission, which to, to recap is a, uh, it's really a multi-phase mission, but the first one launched um, since our last episode. And ExoMars is looking at a bunch of different things. Um, the There's an orbiter that's looking at the, atmosphere there's going to be a lander that looks at geographic activity and and potentially like crust and mantle makeup of the planet and uh they had a little bit of a um actually still a little bit unknown but a little bit of a, an issue with this uh with this launch yeah I mean, so speaking of kazakhstan this was a this was a launch on a, on a russian uh rocket a proton 
Um, and uh, so it was from Kazakhstan, from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, which I just enjoy saying Baikonur Cosmodrome. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, and it, everything we heard about it is, you know, ESO said it's going great. ExoMars is on its way. That's really awesome. And then something happened, which is um, they they the 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 imaging of tracking the flight where you're actually like seeing the the ship found like a cloud of debris floating along with the ship um and that's not supposed to happen because the last stage which is called the breeze breeze m uh this russian rocket uh that's part of the proton stack um it was it's supposed to separate and um and fire a couple of times to go into what they call a disposal orbit. So it's the or a great they've got great names for this. A disposal orbit, a graveyard trajectory. Um <laughs> but uh this appears to have gone wrong. Um and as far as they can tell, uh something on the Breeze M like probably blew up. <laughs> Uh, which wouldn't be the first time there was a Breeze M that, mm-hmm. that exploded back in uh, January. Um, it it actually launched in December, and then like a month later, it uh, it it blew itself up. <laughs> Yikes! Um, so so the only so what this means they're unclear about when it happened and far how far away from the uh, the Breeze M the um, the the ExoMars uh, craft was. So there's a question of like, did it get hit by any debris? Uh, and, uh, is there any debris traveling with it that might be a problem, uh, going forward, or are they going to be able to sort of maneuver out of the, out of the, out of the cloud and move on? Um, I, I think they're waiting for all the, uh, equipment to come up, all the, all the, um, all the instruments that have come up so far on the, on ExoMars have been fine. Uh, there are a few more that need to, uh, be basically powered on and then they'll have a better idea of whether there's been any damage or anything like that. But it sounds like what it's going to be is a close call that, uh, ExoMars separated from its, its last stage rocket and then boom. (laughs) But, uh, so in the end, ExoMars might be like the hero in an action movie who walks away from an explosion and doesn't even look back. (laughs) I, I, I think that's, that's sort of what the best case scenario is here. Uh, the last thing, um, in our checklist is that uh, is this was actually sent uh, by a friend of mine, uh, listener David, and it is a uh, article friend from, friend David friend even, David even and you posted this on the on the on the Tumblr uh, as we said liftoffpodcast dot space, um, and I saw this and I put it in the show notes because it's uh, it's wild yeah, so the Soyuz rockets that uh, are used like we're talking about uh, the, these Russian vehicles they have been in service for a long time and they've been evolved and upgraded over the years. But according to this article, it seems like the ignition system is basically the same as has been from the fifties, which is pretty amazing. So it's, um, uh, there's a great image that's already clicked through in the show notes and see this thing because it, it's basically described as a giant wooden match. So it's a it's pyrotechnic ignition device, please pyrotechnic Yes. ignition device it's just Not made match. out of russian birch trees <laughs> yep so they they have these wooden basically pieces that are uh, mounted uh, underneath the rocket and they uh, lead up into the combustion chambers and then they basically just light it on fire and <laughs> which is just hilarious to me um and that's how they that's how they ignite the 
the motors. And yeah, so there's, there's a picture there's of a pyro at the top of the wooden thing, and then they they press a button, and it and it all of them are wired, so they all pop at the same time. This uh, pyro and the pyros go off on the top of these matchsticks, and that's how the rocket goes. Mm-hmm. So this came up because on March 12th <laughs> there was a. Uh, a Russian satellite that was supposed to be launched, and there was an abort at launch because one of these uh, wooden components basically didn't didn't pop, didn't light, and so there was a lack of ignition. So the propellant got cut off by the computer, and it all shut itself down. Um, but I think it's just a really, I mean, it's it is sort of funny to think about it. This really seemingly old idea still being in use, but. Um, the Soyuz rocket has had an incredible track record, and clearly, yeah. if it works, don't change it. I guess, but um, the Soyuz series has been flying since the seventies and is still flying, and is still you know fairly reliable. So yeah, um, I think somebody in, in that article somebody said this is this is the only um, surviving component in modern rockets made of wood. So that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what else there was. That kind of has me wondering about what other components they were using. Yeah, well, early rockets were just carved out of a tree, and then you poured <laughs> rocket fuel inside. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Sure, that's true. <laughs> I, I, this is this is uh, this also is a, a great story because it plays into the Russian ingenuity thing of uh, the, that famous story that's not actually true about how America spent millions of dollars coming up with a pen that could write in space, and the Russians used a pencil. Right. Um, where it, people used pencils and there was a guy who was obsessed with the idea of making a space pen and he made it and they, now everybody uses it, but it wasn't, you know, that, that story got boiled down to something that's not really real, but this is a, a similar thing, which is, which is, you know, we Americans think, well, we're going to high tech this thing. We're going to high tech this thing up. And that may not actually be true. Again, the perception may not be reality. In the end, you do have to just ignite the fuel. How do you do that? But it plays into that stereotype that the, the Americans are, you know, want to be like proudly high tech and the Russians are like, yeah, it gets the job done. That's all we care about. We just right. going, we're just we're going into space. What do you want from us? We're, we're going to use whatever tools we... It's simple. It works. We're fine. It's something incredibly practical about yeah, it. Yeah, totally sort of, practical. Sort of nice to think about. So, Jason, we're going to jump into our topic, but first, do you want to tell us about our sponsor? Oh, sure. That is a great idea. So, um, you know, there are there are friends over at Wobbleworks. We've been talking to you about them a lot. If you're a fan of uh, this podcast, you sh- you are interested in astronomy. Uh, you may not know where to begin. You may be a veteran and have uh, a telescope and all of that, but you may be also somebody who is just starting out and wants to wants to know what they see when they look up at the stars. This happens to me a lot. Where um, I'll be out and people know that I like space stuff. I'll be outside at, at night and people would be like, "So is that Jupiter or is that Mars or?" Is that Venus or something like that, and um, and I don't always know because I'm like I, I don't know. It's if it's closer to the sun, it's probably Venus. If it's far away, it's definitely not Venus. We'll see what else it is. Um, and the fact is, so you don't have to be afraid if you, you don't have a spacey person around to ask. That's the great thing about uh, Wobbleworks's app, Luminos. Is it's got a database of all of the stars and planets and comets and and pretty much anything you can think of. So if you're planning a trip somewhere where you are getting away from city lights and there's going to be a lot of stars out there, if you've got kids and you want to educate them about uh, the universe, I had a great conversation with my kids about the size of the universe and, and where we are in the galaxy and the speed of light and relativity. And it all happened outside my sister-in-law's house up in the mountains because we were out there looking at the Milky Way because we can't see it from where, where we live in the suburbs. Um, and, and I had uh, I had my iPhone out because uh, you can pack 
all of this information now on a mobile device and take it outside and see what's going around using Luminos. So it's been in development for more than a decade. It's got all the power of a desktop astronomy program. It's been doing, uh, they've been doing updates for six years now for free on the App Store. So it's not like they're going to keep charging you every year for access to Luminos. Version 9's got the largest star catalog available anywhere on mobile, but you can also choose how much of the catalog you want to load in your phone. So if you are in an area where you can't see everything, uh, that's fine. You can make a smaller, uh, a smaller catalog download to fit onto your device. There's a detailed model of the International Space Station. Hey, are we going to talk about space stations later? We hmm. are. Uh, you can see it for yourself using the ride-along button, and you can orbit with the space station. Um, you might even catch a glimpse of a meteor falling past you into our atmosphere. Uh, and you can even add an alert so that Luminos will tell you when the International St- Space Station is going to be visible at your house, which we've done that, and that's great. You run outside, and you see it pass overhead, and your neighbor says, what are you looking at? And you say, that's the International Space Station. And it's pretty it's pretty awesome. So w- Wobbleworks is a family business. Put together, uh, the people at Wobbleworks have more than 50 years of software experience and luminos is this delightful app uh whether you're a a veteran space fan or you're trying to create some new space fans detailed planet and moon maps tens of thousands of asteroids and comets the largest deep space image catalog wireless support for telescope mount control if you are somebody who has a telescope a whole lot more check out the details about luminos at wobbleworks.com and thanks to wobbleworks for sponsoring liftoff once again all right Jason, it's time to get in our time machine. Oh, all right. Is it also a space machine? I guess, I guess uh, depending on how you view time and space interacting, sure. It would have to be, right? It's a space-time machine. I think so. So we're going to go back. We're going to dial back to April 19th, 1971. I'm not born yet. Sorry. I was a few months old. Happy birthday. <laughs> um, nope. So we're we're going to tra- travel to the Soviet Union in April of 1971, and this marks the launch of the first ever space station, uh, the Soyuz 1. And uh, when you think about space stations, and there's going to be links to all this stuff in the show notes, when we think today of uh, space stations, we of course think of the International Space Station with this large sort of meandering design that i mean you see these graphics of it overlaid over a football field this is not what this what these early space stations were they were um, monolithic designs, so it's all basically one component that flies at once there's no any sort of construction in space at this point um but the, the soyuz one holds the the mark for being the first and Soyuz 10 crew launched uh, three days later, caught up with it, and attempted to dock. But as we go through this, we will see that um, the history of space stations has uh, is kind of littered with things that don't quite work right. And so the the 10 crew was unable to dock with it, so they returned home. And then the Soyuz 11 crew uh, launched, and they actually spent 23 days in space uh, aboard the space station, which was a record at the time. Uh, by a sizable amount, and uh, even this victory is is unfortunately um, uh, marked with with a tragedy that the Soyuz eleven crew were killed. Um, actually, before reentry, they had a depressurization event in their Soyuz capsule, and this actually suspended uh, the Soyuz spacecraft and the the basically the Soviet space program. Much like uh, America did after the two shuttle 
uh, incidents and after right. Apollo 1. Uh, Soviet Union did this as well. They redesigned a bunch of stuff in the spacecraft. And the... Um, so yeah, that, one that was, was the, I think that was the was that the first in space fatality? I'm not it sure. Was. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Um, there was a, a cosmonaut uh, who was killed earlier, but it was it was kind of a pawn reentry. So I think this is still the only loss in space, mm. um, uh, where the shuttles and then those those that other Soyuz accident were sort of uh, upon launch or, or reentry. Mm. Um, but the station itself basically ran out of fuel before the Soyuz could be flown again and was deorbited after uh, six months and um, and destroyed. But as as simple and as small as the space station was, it's only like 15 meters long and four meters across. I and mean, it's not a big piece of hardware. Um, it's notable because it actually kicked off a uh, what at the time was thought to be one big program but we're actually two so remember this is 1970s the height of the cold war in many regards the soviets used the um Soyuz stations as a cover they actually had a second sort of um, program that was uh, military based and um this wasn't known at the time uh by uh the rest of the world but it's come out since and so they actually had four crewed, like scientific research space stations, and then tr- two crewed military reconnaissance space stations. Um, all kind of looked the same. They used this hardware designation DOS 1, DOS 2, DOS 3, et cetera. But um, a third of them basically were used for, uh, well, spying. <laughs> It's kind of wild. Well, this is like when we talked about the space shuttle, the same thing, the idea that they were classified shuttle missions early exactly. early on, and then it sort of when it became impractical, and they had launched all the spy satellites that were designed to to fit into the, the shuttle launch bay that, that didn't happen anymore in the latter part of the of the shuttle uh, lifespan. But, you know, military militarization of space was definitely a thing that was happening. We'll see that uh, even in current day when we get to what China's doing. Mm. There's concern of that even today. That hasn't really... Hasn't really gone away. Um, there are a couple of, of uh, what I called in, the, in our document notable notes about this program. Um, they had a lot of uh, a lot of failures. Actually, several of these stations, one I believe was destroyed uh, basically at launch. They had a couple that um, basically ended up being unusable. Uh, it was very hit or miss in these early days. Um, uh, Salute 2 actually experienced depressurization and lost both of its solar panels like two months into orbit and there's really Hmm. not a lot of explanation as to what happened there um and it was actually the first um military use space station but uh that had some sort of uh, issue and was never uh never actually used um so six was um uh, I think probably one of the one of the two really successful ones. So it was visited from 1977 all the way to 1981 by 16 uh, manned uh, crewed spacecraft, and uh, including five long duration crews. So this marks the first time where we're seeing uh, sort of sustained activity in low Earth orbit, and it was the um, it broke the long duration crew that had been set by Skylab, which we can already talk about, uh, with 96 days uh, for one crew, which is um, pretty wild. The longest flight was 185 days. So really, 
you know, if we think about today, everyone is talking about this year in space mission. 185 days is halfway there. And having that take place way back in the late 70s was a, was a big milestone. Yeah, it's... um. It's a. This is one of those examples where the the Soviets did not do the the moon program because we kind of beat them there, and they they shifted gears. So they were uh, very much uh, innovators at the beginning, and then this was the next step, which was well, okay, we're you're doing your moon business. We're gonna we're gonna do space station stuff. I also wanted to ask you, like, how do we define a space station? I guess we do. Do we define that as it it it's um it's being launched. Is it is it that it's being launched without people and then uh, and then ships dock to it or something like that? Is that how you define it? Because it, it, when you talk about the Salyuts, especially, I, I get the sense that they launch them on a rocket and then they're floating out there and then they send people up and they connect right. to them and they hang out in them for a while and then they leave. So yeah, we would call that a space station. But I'm just I'm just kind of interested in the mechanics because you could argue these small space stations, single module space stations, are kind of just spacecraft that are, are launched and then attached to later. Um, it, yeah. But by the, by the context of like Mir, which we're going to talk about, or the International Space Station, it's harder to call these space stations other than the fact that they don't, you know, they're not going to come back to Earth and and people are going to connect to them. I, I guess I guess that's enough to call them space stations. It's just funny, though, because in some ways they're, they're really just sort of like supplemental spacecraft that we're that we're launching and then connecting to. Yeah, that, that's kind of my working definition of, of having something that is. Um, launched and then docked with, and it is not returnable. So, and you're right. I mean, the evolution of these things as we're going to move through it is just unbelievable that over the course of three or four decades, how far technology has come. And, you know, these early ones uh, sort of seem almost like uh, space apartments or something, right? It's, it's you dock to it. You're not really getting a lot of additional space um, to work within. You know, you're not uh, attaching something the size of a football field, but you are docking with something that has its own um, energy, you know, power source, uh, its own water, its own filtration. So it is sort of a self-contained unit that crews can visit and then leave. And um, But yeah, to, to, to call them the same thing as what we call the International Space Station, I agree with you, is a, is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I just I, I just had that thought while we were prepping for this. It's like, what is a space station? <laughs> it's like there's no definition. We sort of, you know what, when you see it, I guess. But um, yeah. <laughs> the definition keeps changing. Like by modern standards, some of this stuff is, it's they were rudimentary, but they were, they were groundbreaking at the time. Right. And these these early ones really, it's like milestone after milestone. So Solute 7, which flew from 1982 to 1991, um, was actually plagued with some hardware issues, but it led to really extensive EVAs and EVAs that included right. repairing and and maintenance. Spacewalks for those those who right. don't know the the space terminology, uh, extravehicular activity. There you go. Are, shouldn't they be like ESAs, extra ex, extra space stational, extra stational mm. activities? I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, what you're you're hanging out out there, you can go out and do a lot of spacewalks because you're not you're not landing, you know, you're not re-entering after a, a half a day or a day. You got time, right? And so the this Soyuz seven was really the first time we see a lot of that sort of outside work, and of course that's become a huge thing. We get to these these later ones um, where an EVA actually saved Skylab, and of course has been a big part of the International Space Station being successful for so long now is the ability to put on a suit and go work outside. Right. And so all this stuff, it's, it's almost like every mission you read in this time period, there's some 
feature or part of it that is a milestone or a, a some sort of new ground being broken just just all the time. Yep. So let's uh, let's come home. You want to tell us a little bit about uh, a little bit about Skylab? Uh, sure. Uh, Skylab. So uh, this is the funny thing. One of my earliest space memories is actually going outside to see Skylab as it was re-entering pass overhead. Oh wow. Um, because they, they track, they said, Oh, it's going to be, it's going to come over and you're going to be able to see it, um, in one of the final orbits before it, it, uh, it broke up in the atmosphere. And, and, uh, and so I, I remember going out as a, as a little kid in, I guess I was like eight <laughs> and watching, uh, Skylab. So Skylab, Skylab's funny because it's, um, it's the U S's space station. Um, it was, uh, it was pretty ambitious. It, it was, uh, it was, uh, in launched by a Saturn V, uh, so we had the lifting capacity from Apollo, so we we did that there, and uh, and we got it up there, but there were problems immediately. The um the solar panels got uh, got ripped and jammed, and so it lost most of its uh its power, so it was sort of never. It was kind of wrecked to begin with, and it was a question about whether it was going to be any use at all, which is a real um a real uh, shame. Uh, there were only three manned missions or crewed missions, we would say now, uh, to the station. Uh, and they were all in the 73-74 time frame, even though it orbited until 79. They all docked with uh, the Apollo uh, command module because that yeah. was the capsule that we had. That's what was around. Yeah. So so that's, that's how they did it. Um, and uh, there was, uh, I think, famously, one of the missions was this uh this repair mission mm-hmm. um that was uh that was the big like how do we fix a lot of the missions i mean all the missions were sort of repair missions where they were trying to fix the uh fix it so that it was useful i think i think the first mission which was uh, uh skylab 2 uh pete conrad who was one of the apollo astronauts um was uh that was his last mission and uh he uh it's famous because they had to fix a lot of stuff and that like they, they went into the station and it was, um, I think, isn't the story like it was, it was super hot inside. So yeah. they had all these, they had all these problems inside where the, the heat inside was building up because the, the shield, the solar shield was, was, uh, messed up. Mm-hmm. So they had to do, it's not really well known. Um, but it, it, it's one of the most dramatic missions in, uh, U.S. spaceflight history. It's not Apollo 13, but it was quite a bit of work that they had to do, where they where they had to go and try to fix all this stuff. And and they were up there for uh, 28 days, so it was a it was an intense, long mission where they were trying to fix all of uh, as much broken stuff as they could. Um, and and also, you know, that's the advantage of being on a on a space station is that they were able to have it be this extended duration. But, um, so, so they had the three missions, but unfortunately, um, it was not, um, oh, I should mention too, um, the second mission, one of the, uh, one of the space, uh, one of the astronauts on Skylab three, which was the second man mission to, 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 uh, Skylab was, uh, one of the, one of the astronauts was Owen Garriott, who you may know as the father of Richard Garriott, who was Lord British, he wrote the Ultima computer games and then ultimately became a space tourist and bought his way uh, to space in the <laughs> uh, in the space tourism program. He went to the ISS on a Soyuz, uh, but his dad was an astronaut and was flew one of the one of the Skylab missions. That's pretty cool. 
Um, so, you know, they, they, I don't know. It, Skylab was such a cool idea, but it was, it, I, in some ways I feel like almost emblematic of, um, of the problems with the post Apollo NASA, mm -hmm. where it was super ambitious, but at the same time it was a letdown and it didn't work right. And they, it seems like they actually like thought better of it, that they kept thought, thinking about going back there. It was sitting up there. They literally, the last crewed mission to Skylab, they, um, they left like a bag of supplies and they left the door unlocked. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's like, if somebody wants to come, right. we got some stuff, but it was also a statement of like, we don't know if any, who's going to come back here. We don't know. Um, right. And they were concerned about like, is it, cause it had been broken, right? It was it going to be safe. Um, and so in the end, um, you know, there was a debate about whether they were going to keep Skylab around. If the shuttle program had come in a little bit earlier, it's possible that they would have done a boost, which would have kept it from breaking up in the atmosphere. But the shuttle program was not going to happen uh, in time, uh, unfortunately. So even though they gave it, they gave it a boost with the last crewed mission there. They the the shuttle couldn't get it in time. It wasn't it wasn't uh, authorized anyway, and they decided to let it burn up in the atmosphere. Unfortunately. They couldn't really control the descent, and although um, the uh, Pacific Ocean is generally where you sh you aim for your re-entered craft to go if you're burning them up, so that the parts just land scattered in the Pacific, it's half practically half the Earth's surface. There's a lot of room to land stuff there. Um, it went it, it burned up uh, over Australia instead. There's a story in the show notes about like large. There's photos of it online. Large pieces of debris that hit the ground yep and this best i can tell there's sort of two factors that went into that one they they really couldn't control the reentry the way that they wanted to they were able to make some last minute adjustments but due to an error uh basically missed the pacific ocean yeah. and and came down they gave uh, it a try but it it it, it, it reentered too slowly so it went over western australia basically and um and it broke up much closer to the ground than uh, had been previously mm -hmm. estimated. So it, if it had broken up higher in the atmosphere, it would have smaller pieces, more surface to basically burn up in the atmosphere, yeah. but it didn't. And so there's these large pieces that still survive today. Um, there's an interesting thing too about Skylab debris that um, other, uh, in other instances where NASA debris has been found, mainly the, the um, Columbia incident, NASA took all that back, right? As part of an investigation, well, with this one, um, they could have done that, but basically NASA chose a, what this article calls a finder's keepers approach of, um, you know, if you are out in the Australian desert and you come across a chunk of, of Skylab, because it's not part of an investigation, right? There's no human remains. There's nothing like that going on. Uh, you can just keep it. And so there's um, items that occasionally pop up online for sale. There's some uh, pictures online of some of the stuff has ended up in museums around the world. Um, a, a very real reminder that that deorbiting something is is serious business, right? And yeah. that's a, a concern with the International Space Station being so large. Um, of how do you how do you manage something like that? And and you know, for me, this the the reentry is just like one more like chapter in that book of Skylab not really doing what it's supposed to do. Um, yeah. from the from the damage at launch, you outlined. In fact, I put a picture in the show notes. Uh, you can see there's a basically a large like tarp uh, that they and during that big uh, spacewalk that they took out over the side of it to keep temperature down. There's only one solar panel. There's supposed to be two. 
I mean, it was, yeah, it was kind of wrecked. It was plagued by issue, uh, issue after issue. So it's, um, you know, and it existed in this weird time in America, the American space program, where even if they had wanted to go back, there wasn't another Apollo command service module available. Um, so until the shuttle's done, you can't go. And of course, the shuttle was delayed and delayed and delayed. So it, it, it really kind of fell between the cracks of these two big programs. And, um, you know, the lack of planning in that and sort of the um, uh, the lack of foresight that, hey, you know, this this new vehicle is not going to be ready in time. And it's the whole thing, like you said, just really speaks to sort of the the post-Apollo problems at, at the agency. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is emblematic of everything that kind of went wrong with NASA in the 70s, which is not to say it wasn't a cool thing. It was sort of just the fact that it was broken. The missions that, that went there were pretty cool. Um, also, legendarily, I think it's the third of the of the three missions. Um, they were up there for like 80 days. And at one point, they got so mad at NASA that they turned off their communications and took a day off, which is mm-hmm. just wild. But um, they were not. It was, yeah. There were issues. There were issues. <laughs> well, that's that's the same crew that left um, life-size dummies inside the space station. So when the fourth mission showed oh, okay. up and they opened the hatch, um, there's a super creepy picture that we'll put in the show notes. Like, um, I think I would probably scream and pass out. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you, you open the hatch to a space station that there is no way that anyone else has been here, but you open it and there's a, a dummy in a flight suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little creepy, but um, yeah, it, it is a different time. And yeah. uh, they learned a lot. A lot of those missions were focused on mental and physical health with long-term spaceflight because this is the first time the U.S. had really done anything like that besides going to the moon. And so it was building a lot of those tools and processes and information that eventually would help not only with shuttle, but of course the the International Space Station. So what about Mir? Yeah, so we're gonna go. We're gonna go back. Uh, go back to Russia. Um, Mir orbited from 1986 to 2001, and it's it's really the the first like third generation space station. So you had the the first Soviet ones were very small. You had Skylab, which was a little more uh, involved, but still basically a monolithic uh, approach. But this was um, Mir was the first one to be built with rearrangeable modules. So basically, they would um, they started with a Soyuz core module. And they would fly on top of proton rockets, fly additional modules that would basically were programmed to dock with this core module. So the first several mere modules and components were built in space. And of course, with additional spacewalks later on, they could be rearranged and moved and and done uh, differently. But it's the first time that this sort of flexible uh, design um, was used and and was able to to build something. much larger than had been previously flown. Yeah, it's it's modular modular space station, which is I would say now what I would probably call a definition of a space station if I was really obsessed about how to define a space station, which I'm totally not totally not obsessed about it. Um, but th- this feels like you know they they were building you know we're no longer launching an item into space and then connecting to it. We're launching as humans uh, multiple items and attaching them, and uh, and that's uh, that's. Uh, it was it's pretty cool and this is the as a as a person you know as a teenager and all of that this was the space station that was orbiting 
you know, I Skylab. I didn't really pay attention to the Solute things. Those were always sort of these obscure Russian missions. But Mir was really interesting because it was bigger and because uh, the space shuttle visited it. Yeah, that's a that's a big thing. So in the mid '80s, um, NASA was looking at launching a um, a counterpart to Mir called Freedom, and that project ended up kind of spinning up into the International Space Station, but. The budget was out of control, the timeline was out of control, and of course the relationship between the former Soviet Union and the United States was changing drastically. And so in 1992, 1993, um, it was announced that the the shuttle would be flown to the, uh, the Mir space station, and that really opened up a new chapter in uh, crewed spaceflight, right? I mean, now we don't think twice about the fact that the International Space Station is not only uh, American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts, but but crews from all sorts of different countries. But that was not the case leading up to this, right? I mean, space was, in many ways, a very realistic picture of the Cold War. And so to see this uh, change in this shuttle Mir program take place was a big shift. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. This is the... Uh, other than the Apollo Apollo Soyuz link up that was mm-hmm. uh impressive but was also kind of a stunt. Um this is this is the beginning of cooperation. The the shuttle launches to Mir were the beginning of a real kind of American cooperation in space and and keeping in mind this is during the Cold War. This is you know this started uh started in in 94 so it's it's just after the Cold War. Okay. So it's Russia Formerly, this Soviet space station turned into a Russian space station. And I guess you, that's what I would say is you come out of the Cold War and suddenly, hey, we're going to go visit. We're going to bring you a cup of sugar um, at, at your uh, at your Mir space station. And <laughs> it really signaled that the International Space Station was a thing that um, that could happen. I think, in fact, the shuttle docks on Mir started after... Um, Bill Clinton authorized the American um, Freedom Program to be turned into uh, the International Space Station Program. I think that actually happened in that in that sequence where it was like '93. Clinton said, "Okay, we're just going to go in on this International Space Station concept," and in '94, the space shuttle started visiting Mir. So it's really kind of of a piece that this was. Um, this was an older station. It was not going to be the new International Space Station, but they were getting their practice for it um, by right. by do- docking American shuttles to to Mir. Right, um, and because it was such a uh, an orbit for so long, something like twenty eight long duration crews. There's uh, many more shorter crewed missions, and most most of these missions were like six six months or so. Um, but one cosmonaut, um, uh, Valerie Polakov. 437 days yeah in orbit and um uh there is a picture <laughs> on uh on the uh, on the internet of him looking out one of the the windows of Mir and he just it, it is a sort of very striking photo of um this this guy hanging out in orbit for so yeah. long hey guys hey come and, I'm come, s- come and get me i'm here <laughs> that is I'm the here. record by the way for the longest single space flight in human history it's 14 months yeah it's wild, um, and and so I mean, Mir really was a, a more so than Skylab, and definitely more so than the earliest Soviet stations. This is the testing ground for what we know today. So much of um, uh, not only so many scientific and like um, medical experiments and information 
you know, kind of came from Mir, but this the idea that you can you can fly crews from very different countries, very different space programs, and work together. Um, it was a, it was a huge breakthrough, like we said. Now there were there were issues, right? Because um, there there always are. Um, in 1997, in particular, there were two big accidents. Um, on February 23rd of that year, an oxygen gener- oxygen generator caught fire, and according to an American astronaut, burned for like 14 minutes. The Russian government says it wasn't that long. It was, it was, I think they said like less than a minute or two. Um, but the crew was forced to don respirators. And the big issue was that the fire extinguishers in the new modules were actually immovable. They couldn't be taken off the wall, which is, it was of course a huge um, safety concern. And this popped out at me currently because the Cygnus mission that's going on right now is going to end with NASA setting a fire uh, right. inside that that vehicle on purpose to study, you know, how fire basically moves in microgravity. And so, really, this February twenty third, nineteen ninety seven, is really the biggest um, uh, fire really ever um, in space, at least that I could find. And definitely, uh, definitely raised some questions about the safety of the the Mir um, station. Yeah, and that wasn't helped right <laughs> later that year. Had a little um, little uh, incident, a little uh, little fender bender. Yeah. <laughs> so the, there was a resupply ship, the Progress M thirty four, collided with um, the Spectre module, which was a module that was used mostly for American astronauts to um, sleep in. And uh, it hit it so hard and damaged it so badly, it not only tore up the solar panel on it, but actually depressurized the module. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being, um, it, the hatch that was open inside the, the space station, uh, it's depressurized, and they actually had to cut hoses and stuff, and they got the hatch closed. And it was it was basically permanently sealed off from the rest of the, um, the space station. They ended up doing some, uh, what they called IVAs, so... Because it was depressurized, you had to be in a suit, but to work in there, and they had to retrieve some items from it, they had to do basically a, a spacewalk inside the module. Wow. Um, and this was, a, I mean, there was a lot of questions, especially on the American side of the table of, um, you know, is is Mir safe? It, it had been flying for a long time. Um, you look at pictures of it online, and um, it it looks much older than it actually is, especially on the inside. It's just like this labyrinth of of um, infrastructure, and it's very crowded and very small. And you can totally see like why something like a fire could be so dangerous. And I can just say, in the in the uh, culture of the time, in the in the mid to late nineties, I don't know if you remember anything about this, but I I remember that the mirror became a joke. Like at this point, it was it was perceived as being this old, you know. Soviet relic that was having these these accidents and all and it had been up there and it was uh, I I don't think that was fair but I think that was it became kind of a punchline at least in the US um as, mm. and, and and we knew that the new international space station was coming on on board too so I think that was a part of it and and that led to the decommissioning of of uh of Mir although um you know it it was still briefly at least in operation when the ISS was in operation which is kind of funny yeah i mean the, the thing was deorbited in march of 2001 uh which is 15 years after its after its initial launch it was really only designed for like 5 years of crew support 
and um, so definitely was pushed past its initial design. And I was I was really too young to to recall that, but I can totally see how that would be the response, um, especially you know that's only really only a handful of years after the Cold War has really settled down, and I could see that being a point for some Americans to kind of poke at and um, and complain, but. But ten, now we're ten years of continual crew presence. That was the record until the ISS beat it. Um, ten ten years where there was somebody, well, like nine years and three hundred and fifty seven days or something like that. It's so close, um, of continu- <laughs> continual uh, crew presence. That's that was the record. So it was, uh, yeah, it did it did its job and then some. So now we're now we're in our era, the International Space Station. Woo! Like we mentioned, the Space Station Freedom. So it was. Uh, the American government's idea of building sort of a mere counterpart. There was going to be a mere two. There was talks talks of that, and basically those two projects more or less merged uh, into the International Space Station. The first component was launched in 1998, and like Mir, it could basically build itself more or less to a, to a degree. Um, and it was ready for occupation in November of 2000, and has been occupied continuously since that date. Uh, the early days of Mir. There, there would be crews, and then they would return to Earth, and no one would stay. And that changed uh, about five years into the mirror life cycle. And then, like you said, they had about a decade, uh, just shy of a decade, of continual crew. Mm-hmm. Or as the ISS was designed to have uh, crew presence uh, basically at all times. So from November 2nd, 2000 until today, it's been crewed. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um that that's the record, and uh, we've talked about the space station a lot. So we we don't need to go deep into the ISS here. We've talked about it a lot. I'm sure we'll talk about it some more. You know, it, it its lifespan does keep getting extended. The beauty of the the fact that it's modular is, um, and I wonder if this is probably what the what the end result of it is going to be is that we'll keep building onto it. Um, at some point, somebody's going to need to make some new modules for it. There are a few that are in the planning stages, including one that's really interesting that's a uh, an inflatable module. Because the idea, one of the thoughts about uh, creating larger spaces in outer space for uh, space stations is you have them be inflatable. You you, um, you They're small when they're packed into a rocket, but then you can inflate them in space and they are a much larger space. But that's never really been tried. So there's um, they're going to do, I think SpaceX is, is uh, contracted to ferry it up there. They're going to do this test module, which they're going to attach and inflate. Um, and, uh, and then what they're going to do is monitor it to see like, are there leaks? Are there, are there technical problems? What is it practical to do that? So there are a few modules in, 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 uh, the planning stages now, but I do wonder at some point if that's going to become a, a topic, a bigger topic in, uh, the U S space program, especially like, what do we do, um, not necessarily after the ISS program, but if we're going to keep extending it at some point, somebody might, uh, want to you know, fund some new modules for it to expand it or replace some of the existing modules. And uh, it's unclear what, what what's going to happen there. But that's the beauty of it being modular is uh, and that everybody gets to help pay for it instead of just one country bearing the bearing the brunt of it. Right. And um, that that backbone was really set out. Um, there's a, a couple of different treaties between the U.S. and Russia that. um the International Space Station is a laboratory, an observatory, and a factory in low Earth orbit. Because we've talked about this before, there's this weird sort of dual track system put in place at the International Space Station. There's sort of the agency's own research that they that they carry out, but then there's also a commercial side to that. So 
Jason, if, if you and I had some sort of industrial company and we wanted to see how our product worked in microgravity, there is a venue for us to approach uh, the International Space Station and have experiments, have something flown and, and carried out. Um, so there's this dual track. And um, in addition to the idea of it being like a staging base for possible future moon missions, I think that's basically kind of off the table at this point. Um, but it, it is really a, uh, a very collaborative, very um, uh, distinct in a lot of ways uh, space station of these things that we're talking about that it is so multinational. Yeah. It's cool. It's real cool. The, um, like you said, it's currently planned to be in service until 2024, I believe is the current date. Yeah, keeps getting pushed uh, back. Yep, yep, that moves around every once in a while. So um, uh, 2024 is the current date. Uh, it is believed that deorbiting is possible, but would be um, have to obviously involve uh, Russia. They have a good number of modules that are that are part of the International Space Station. And uh, from what I've read, uh, there at least publicly, there's not a lot of information about how, how that would work. Obviously, you don't uh, want to run... Uh, sort of a, another Skylab scenario. Uh, I mean, that's still a joke, right? That Skylab is going to hit you in the head. Yeah. Um, and the ISS is just so dr- much, so drastically bigger. Yeah. Uh, is definitely going to be complicated to deorbit it. So, the, it, you know, there's always the question of, well, is it sort of, um, is there, is budget allows, is technology allowed to sort of continually rehab it and, and change things out and always have it? Um there's lots of questions on how this thing how this thing winds down, and really 2024 is not that far away. And so this will be something that's, I think, part of the conversation, like you said, uh, in the years to come. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, they're, they're, the, the tough thing about some of this stuff is that you can't just let it lay there, right? You have to do something. You, you, at some point, somebody's going to have to spend money to keep it going or to shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> or you know because otherwise it's going to be this big thing that hits the earth and that's not so great so right because we'll we haven't really talked about it these space stations have a issue where their their orbits decay over time yeah there's drag from from the atmosphere because they're in low earth orbit that gradually brings them down and they need to be boosted and uh that's uh it's going to be interesting to watch and to see see what happens there i mean there's uh, obviously, at least here in the in the states, there's a um, a big uh, shift in focus to Mars and 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 these other things. But at the same time, commercial crews going on, so it, there's a lot of a lot of uh, programs at play right now. Yeah. So we're now going to go to China. Um, sort of the uh, the TLDR in this section is not much is known about this program. Yeah, it's kind of a mystery. Tiangong, uh, they they're so so China is trying to be China wants to build its own space program and they're they're actually being it's it's somewhat secretive, which is a thing that China does, but it's also they want to be self-reliant. So the idea here is China doesn't China doesn't want to hitch rides with other people. You know, China wants to build its own stuff and be self-sufficient. Um, so they're building their own space station. Rather than saying, hey, U.S. and Russia, why don't we build some modules and add them on to your international space station? And we'll join that project. They're like, no, no, we want to build our own space station, which I can sort of see that, that they don't have the track record that the U.S. and Russia have in space. And so, uh, or the European Space Agency even. So they're like, we want to prove our 
our medal here. And, and, and I think that also is this is a program that's supposed to inspire nationalism in the Chinese people to say, look at us. We are now much more capable. We're a spacefaring nation at last. Um, and so we've had the first uh, it was a while ago. They had the first Chinese uh, astronauts. Are they Taikonauts? I think they call them. I think so. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so now they've got the this uh, this Tiangong program where they they launched a uh, they launched a space station in 2011 and it's still up there even though they said it would be deorbited it hasn't been yet we don't <laughs> yeah, really know what's going on there still and that there it had a crew in 2012 um there's talk that there's a, a t2 i think that's where it's made of liquid metal it was a Termin- terminator reference there 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 you know there's a new one uh that's supposed to be coming this year and the idea is that they're going to end up uh, around 2020 ish with a with a modular station that's more like mir yeah and so there it's these built it's these same steps we've been talking about all episode right you start with something small um something limited in use and capacity and you build upon that and get towards that sort of third generation modular design but like you said it's it's completely unknown and um you know the the the, the t1 uh station is you know it's still orbiting they they haven't really said why they didn't deorbit it yet it's believed to have been visited but again like it's it's sort of wild to me that here in 2016 this is going on and like not much is known about it that that it's so sort of uh, uh secretive it very it, it very much like is the cold war in some ways right that the soviets have this spy mission going on and no one knows about it um that's not necessarily a thing of the past and and um and you know my my guess is my hunch is that this is not going as successfully as China would like, and so they've been quiet about it. That if they had been experiencing a lot of success, maybe they'd be more vocal. But um, but that's just a hunch. Like no one, I mean, <laughs> no one knows. And so, uh, are they going to be um, launching T two this year in twenty sixteen? Like they said that they would. Uh, no way of knowing. My guess is that 2020 number is probably not accurate, but uh, that's what they've said, and that's all we really have to go on. So the um, there's one other thing I wanted to mention about the Chinese space program, which is there is the, there is a controversy, and we, we don't hear people talking about it a lot, but it's fascinating, which is if the Chinese, now that they have their own space capability, if they wanted to participate in the International Space Station, could they? And could their modular space station plan that they're working on ultimately be something that would be that could be connected to in some way the International Space Station project instead of being totally on their own? Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer is maybe, but there's a problem. And the problem is not with the, the Chinese space agency actually does work with the ESA and with the Russian space agency, and it's entirely possible that they may work together on projects in space in the future. Uh, the problem is get guess guess what it is. The U.S. Congress. The U.S. Congress in 2011 passed a law that prohibits American contact with the Chinese space program due to, quote, national security. Perfect. So basically, it's illegal for um, NASA to talk to anybody from the Chinese space program, like completely illegal. Good times. Way to go. Yeah. So it's a challenge. And it's possible that um, this is actually causing a schism here. But my understanding is that the Chinese Space Agency 
Um, you know, th- there were a couple of reports last year that there were talks going on, and that th- there was a question about whether if Russia and ESA work on um, on connections to China, if the Americans would basically be like, you know, la 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 la, I can't hear you, <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but uh, I can't find any examples of it going any further than there being talks about it. So. Um, it's it's an open question about um it, it sounds like this is going to require um congress and the president to make a change in policy so it sounds like basically a deal would have to be struck um but uh, the the national security thing is also fascinating because you know everybody would probably agree that us space tech is way better than chinese space tech and so i guess the fear would be that they would crib from us or something like that but uh, it's just it's strange given the uh, the cost of space um, to to uh, and and the fact that we're not we're not okay with the Chinese but we're okay with the Russians. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting bit of politics that gets in the way of of, of space cooperation. We'll put a couple links in the show notes about it, but um, that's that's an open question about the future of space stations. I think is what we we have this other spacefaring nation that um, does not have access to the International Space Station and what what's going to happen there. As we move forward, is China going to go on their own with their modular space station or is there going to be something else? I should also mention there's another thing I wanted to throw in here, which is just um, we, we haven't gone to the movies other than The Martian. But I wanted to mention the movie uh, Gravity starring Sandra Bullock um, has a very dramatic transfer to a Chinese space station. Um, that is essentially what the 2020 plan for the Chinese space station is a more mirror like thing. Um, it doesn't actually exist today. The The stuff that's up there now is not, is not that, but um, they use that obviously as inspiration. The idea that there was a place for her to go after she was in the international space station. Um, and uh, I'm not going to say any more about it in case you haven't seen gravity. It's fun. You should probably go see it, but um, or stay, stay. It's not in theaters. Don't go, just stay and see it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a very interesting movie and there's a lot of uh, interesting space stuff in it, but that's sort of the climax of that movie is, is she ends up uh, headed for this uh, Chinese sta- space station. That is an invention. It is, it is sort of where China is talking about going with their space station program. So I thought we'd wrap up with um, what I called kind of a space station, but not really, <laughs> it's really not really at all. But um, I felt like it's it's worth a mention here, really because we didn't talk about it so much in the shuttle episode. But we uh, is it more is it is it, it's not much less of a space station than the early <laughs> space stations, honestly, but with one big catch, right? That it's basically a uh, space backpack. So at the yeah. space lab, as a reusable laboratory that was designed to fit into the the cargo bay of the space shuttle. Yeah, and. Uh, so it's like a it's like a space trailer. What really. what if we? Yeah, I was going to say like imagine if your garage is a uh, is the cargo bay, right? It's the it's like open to the elements and all that. Imagine if you put a room inside the garage <laughs> and connected that to the door of your house. Then you'd be like, man, my garage is now a room of my house. Well, that was Space Lab. Space Lab was like, we don't always need a big you know something in the pickup truck you're right it is it is exactly like a camper that you put on the back of a pickup truck it's like i don't need to haul anything right now but i do need a place to sleep so they would attach this lab and it would just live on the inside of the of the shuttle so kind of kind of joking aside space lab really was a uh, to a degree a very flexible platform so uh-huh. they could configure it for whatever the mission needed and um, there's some photos of it um uh 
in the show notes of, of basically the inside of it. And it looks um, really not unlike you see the photos now of the sort of the corridors in the International Space Station where you have uh, basically um, racks that we like we talked about in a previous episode. Um, so they could they could really customize it, build it for exactly that they for what they needed, and then um, and then and then reuse it. And so it's um, it's something that sort of added uh, an additional functionality to the shuttle so you could do things without necessarily always going to the space station right but um you know definitely is not uh, i think by our our limits test of what's a space station or not it doesn't count but it was sort of a uh a piece of hardware that moved in that direction a little bit yeah it totally doesn't count though doesn't count nope uh space station or not (laughs) hmm intriguing yeah so uh I think that's I think that's the highlights. Yeah. Um yeah, I think so. Um you know, in the future we're going to, you know, like I mentioned, there's going to they're testing inflatables. There's an idea for like space stations that are for tourists. The inflatables gets a lot of talk because it's so much easier to ship something up that's very small and then expand it when you get up there. Right. Um they're talking about whether they might do something that's out uh further away as a test for Mars missions like put put something at, at the Lagrange point or something like that where it's it's uh between here and the moon but it's not like in low earth orbit um and then the ISS you know the the question of like how long that can keep going so it's all just kind of uh floating out there in space right now <laughs> So if you want to find the links for all the topics we discussed today, a couple ways you can do that. You can open the podcast app of choice uh, that's playing my very, uh, these very words to you right now. Links will be in there. You can also find them on our website this week. Uh, those links will be at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 17. Uh, you can follow along a couple different places on Twitter. The show is at liftoff podcast. Uh, it's on Tumblr at liftoffpodcast.space. Thanks to Jason's uh, marvelous purchase of that domain. And you can follow each of us. Jason is at jsnell on Twitter and write sixcolors.com. I am ismh on Twitter and write 512pixels.net. And uh, we'd love to get in touch. Uh, get in touch with us. Love to hear from you. Um, and uh, I think uh, I think that does it for uh, this fortnight, Jason. Yeah, I think so. We we have to return to Earth now. From the uh, from we got to undock from whatever space station we're currently on. And Space Station to, Skype. Space Station Liftoff. There you go. Well, uh, until then, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios. Adios.